kind of funny. It's like this really serious subject, but I think it can be kind of fun that I want to talk about today, and maybe even funny. Um, let me ask, start by asking a, a rhetorical question here, but let me just ask you, uh, do you know someone close to you, a friend of yours? Do you have an extended family member? Do you have a child? Or do you have a parent? Or have you yourself uh, been familiar with divorce? I just want to see a show of hands. Okay, so this might be a relevant message. Because <laughs> everybody, as I expected, put their hands up. When I was a young, hotshot, uh, evangelical, fresh fundamentalist, you know, trying to save everybody and save my own family and trying to save my sister, I badgered her finally to go to my church one day with me, one Sunday. And I uh, went to a very conservative church. I didn't know. It was just a church I picked, and then I ended up cutting my teeth on it. Oh, it was Carlsbad Community Church. Sounds, you know, innocent enough, but it was a Calvinistic, fundamentalist hardcore church and uh and that's how i i got indoctrinated quite frankly and and i became a very very judgmental person and uh but i finally got my sister to go i was like ah maybe this will be the sunday she gets saved gives her heart to jesus becomes a regular church member investing and tithing and everything else so she comes and the message is on this verse i'm going to read to you here next now, my sister had been through two brutal divorces. And the pastor opened up with this. From the inerrant, infallible, inspired, ineffable word of the living God. From the gospel of St. Luke, 1618, the words of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery. And the man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And there were a bunch of other verses. We're going to look at some of them that came after that. The whole message was on divorce. And I'm like, oh, wow. What a Sunday to bring my twice-divorced sister to church with a boyfriend, no less. Oh, my God. And as our church did, it absolutely tore to the bone the concept of divorce and people who have been divorced. I mean, it was a shredding. At the very, very end was this, like, maybe one in a million long shot by the grace of God and God alone and by his divine sovereignty and election, a divorced person might not go to hell, but that would be simply because of God's grace, you know, and I remember she walked out, she goes, well, that was nice, and I'm like, <laughs> I want to talk about divorce this morning, because there are, in my opinion and in my life today, there are very good reasons to get married, and I've also seen a lot of bad reasons to get married, 
there are a lot of good reasons to get a divorce, and there are bad reasons to get a divorce. But what I want to submit to you, something that's different that you hear from what I came from from those days, that the institution of marriage is not sacred. The institution of marriage is not a sacrament. What is sacred in all of our lives is singularly love. Love is sacred. An institution is not. Now, I would have many people who would say, Paul, that is like perhaps the worst blasphemy I've ever heard you speak out. And I accept that. But it's my blasphemy. It doesn't have to be yours, but it's mine. And it's worked for me in helping people. Because people matter to Jesus, and people matter to me. And as I could see with all the hands up here, all of you know somebody or have personally been in that position of being associated or around divorce. Christians who have been taking Jesus' sayings like that out of context and out of culture at face value have forced untold women to remain in terrible marriages with abusive spouses even. And I would go so far to say that not just women, men as well, who just, I mean, I remember counseling one couple. They were the most awful couple I had ever seen in my life. It was, un it was unbelievable. They were both standing, upstanding Christians, blah, 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 and leadership here and all kinds of stuff. And when they came in and they started, and we went through many sessions, I would sometimes not just say a word. I'd just sit there and look at them as they just tore each other apart. And then I, I remember asking one day, and you've probably heard this story. I've shared it here at least once or twice. I asked them, why are you married? Why? And they both looked at me like with incredulous looks. Because we're Christians. Divorce is a sin. And I'm like, do God. Do me. Do yourselves a favor. And go get a divorce. They were so appalled at me. They became outspoken people in this community of how awful a pastor I was. Because I wasn't a Christian pastor. And I said to them, do you think you're doing God a favor? Somehow? You're glorifying God by you both being miserable. And they left the church and just a few years later, she ended up dying, I think, of a stroke or something. And, uh, and then I remember seeing him around town. And I knew this son of a bitch was clicking his heels. He had to be the happiest guy in the world. But, oh, no, seriously, come on. He just, his, you know, his, his ship just arrived. And, and yet he was playing the bereaved widower. Oh, my God, did he love that. Until uh, death do us part. I'm like, oh, my God. It was such hypocrisy. People have used that verse and verses like it 
to trap people, abuse people, guilt people, keep people in some of the worst relationships and situations I've ever seen. Now listen, I said there's good divorces and there are bad divorces. There are people who divorce because, you know, you want to trade the 40 in for 220s. You know, <laughs> you hit the midlife crisis and you want to get your little sports car and go to Vegas and pretend you're a teenager again. That happens, the midlife crises, stuff like that happen. Those aren't good, They're painful, painful for everybody. In my opinion, that kind of crisis is a mental health issue. My dad went through it and I've got plenty of my own mental health issues that I got to struggle with. Um, but, but people who stay in a horrible marriage because they think they're doing God, because the institution is more sacred to them than love, is grossly misappropriating the words of Jesus because they're taken out of context. See, the context of everything that Jesus is saying is in a first-century economic reality. It's against the backdrop of patriarchy and a patriarchal Jewish society and the understanding of their Bible, the Torah, and what's written in it. In Jesus' day, there were two pharisaical Pharisees. These are called the separated ones. They were literally the most holy rabbis in Israel, these Pharisees, there were two large schools, the school of Shammai and the school of Hillel. Shammai was a very, very much a literalist when he read the Torah. Hillel used more uh, interpretive license. He was a progressive in his time. And that has to be understood how the rabbis debated and what Jesus was right smack dab in the middle of when he was speaking these words, these archaic words about divorce in his day, time, and culture. At the time of Jesus, divorce was the man's prerogative. Only the man had the power to divorce. A woman didn't. Check this out. Deuteronomy, the Torah, 22, 13 through 18. Check this out. If a man takes a wife and after sleeping with her dislikes her and slanders her and gives her a bad name saying, I married this woman, but when I approached her, I did not find proof of her virginity. Then the young woman's father and mother shall bring to the town elders at the gate proof that she was a virgin. Now, marriages back then were contractual. They were arranged by the families, by the fathers, and they would arrange this contract, and there was an exchange of money and then an exchange of goods, which was the daughter to her husband. There would be an insula that was built, and then there would be a day of wedding, and the day of wedding came, and then everybody at the wedding party would wait until the marriage was consummated through intercourse. Everybody was there, and a white sheet was laid down on the bed, and the bride and the groom would couple. And her being a virgin, it was understood that she would bleed, and she would bleed on that white sheet. Now, I've made jokes about that before. I'm sure at least a few couples used some chicken blood, but at least to make it look like they waited, right? Like, eh, well, we waited. Yeah, no, yeah, we waited. Look, oh, here's the... But then the groom would come out with the white sheet. 
look, my bride, she was a virgin, and present it back to the father, and the father would keep it. In this situation, the Torah is saying, if a guy says she wasn't a virgin, but the father has proof that she was, because he still has the white sheet with the blood on it, then he can take it to the elders and display the cloth before the elders of the town, and the elders shall take the man and punish him. They shall find him a hundred shekels of silver. That's a lot. And give them to the young woman's father. Because this man has given an Israelite virgin a bad name. However, she shall continue to be his wife. He must not divorce her as long as he lives. Okay, so this is messed up in a lot of ways. But let me focus on one. Um, I want to just focus for a second on the reparation, if you didn't catch it. Who does the reparation for the offense go to? To the woman who was offended? To the father, whose property she was, before he exchanged the property to the husband. There was no reparation for the woman, and to boot, she would have to remain married to the SOB. Oh, thanks, Torah. <laughs> wow. A few verses later. If a man happens to meet a town in town a virgin, pledged to be married, and he sleeps with her. So he, she cheats on her guy, and he sleeps with her. You shall take both of them to the gate of the town and stone them to death. The young woman because she was in a town and did not scream for help, and the man because he violated another man's wife. You must purge the evil from amongst you. Wow, again, like, whoa. Blaming the rape victim because she didn't scream from help loud enough. That is just sick. Blaming the victim for their own rape. But notice, the man is punished not for raping her. He's punished for, quote, violating another man's wife, property. The crime is not against the woman in rape. The crime is against the man as it's his property. few more verses later. Deuteronomy 22, 28, and 9. If a man happens to meet a virgin who is not pledged to be married and rapes her, and they are discovered, he shall pay the father 50 shekels of silver. See, the violation is, whoa, you raped my property. The violation isn't the rape, it's the property. It's the violation against the father's property, the daughter. And he has to pay 50 shekels of silver. And then, get this, the lucky girl that got raped, he must marry that young woman, for he has violated her. So she has to marry her rapist and become his property. This, folks is what all the evangelicals out there 
this is biblical marriage. <laughs> I stand for biblical marriage. Okay. You don't even know what the hell biblical marriage is. You're just so freaking ignorant and stupid and programmed and indoctrinated. You think you know your Bible, but you actually don't know a goddamn thing about what you're talking about. You have no clue. He can never divorce her as long as she lives. So the victim must marry her rapist. And the financial penalty goes to the father. There you go. See, you have to understand this stuff to understand what Jesus is talking about in his day and age 2,000 years ago in the patriarchal society when he brings up divorce. It's not something that transfers to the 21st century in any way, shape, or form. Jesus' saying has got to be interpreted in the light of a culture where women had zero to few rights at all. A woman couldn't send her husband away with a get in Hebrew, meaning a certificate of divorce. Only men were allowed to do that. The Torah's criteria for divorce itself was problematic because in Deuteronomy, a couple chapters later in 24, it says this. Now check this out because this is going to be a big deal. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, get, which we can just think of as get out of here, gives it to her and sends her from his house. And if after she leaves his house, she becomes the wife of another man, and then her second husband dislikes her and writes her a get, certificate of divorce, get out of here, and gives it to her and sends her from the house, or if he dies, then her first husband, who divorced her, is not allowed to marry her again after she's been defiled. This is the damn Jerry Springer show, okay? This is just straight out of Jerry Springer, okay? And this is the word of the living God. In the Torah, the only prerequisite for divorce was if the woman displeased her husband in any way. And this was at the heart of this huge debate in Jesus' day between these two pharisaical schools, Shammai and Hillel. You see, Shammai and Hillel had a difference of opinion of how to interpret that verse. Hillel was more liberal. He focused on the displeasing word of the text and stated that a man could send his wife away giving her a certificate of divorce for any reason if she displeased him. So literally rabbi commentaries will write like, if your wife burns a meal again and it pisses you off, you can say, get out of here. Anything that displeases him. Now, to give Hillel, a progressive rabbi in his day, a little credit. If you're in love with your wife, you put up with things that are displeasing. Let's be honest, right? You just do. If you love your wife and she burns the toast, you're just like, oh, it's fine, honey. 
it's all good, you know. If she can't cook, you're like, oh, mm, this is awesome. Why? Because you love your wife. And the same goes for the wife and the husband. That's what love does. It overlooks these stupid little things, right? So in a sense, Hillel is already assuming that this marriage is really, really, really bad. And I would say Hillel is even smart enough to think that it's probably worse for the woman. I mean, she'd be lucky to get out of Dodge. So if she's living with this controlling SOB and she's constantly displeasing him, let him divorce her. Let the woman go free. She might find a life again. Shammai, though, he was the more literalist. And he focused on the word in the passage, indecent. And that word indecent meant, uh, if it's translated in, into the original language, it means something sexually indecent. So, infidelity. So he would say, only, and only if the wife has been unfaithful, has cheated on him, then you can divorce a wife. Then you can give her a get and tell her to get lost. You've been unfaithful to me. So for him, it was only adultery. It was a, her adultery, not the man's. The man could adulter all he wanted. The woman couldn't divorce him. Just so you know. This is the biblical marriage of Jesus' day. Only men could give the certificate of divorce. So one school said for any reason, and another one said only for adultery. Now, Jesus and Hillel had a lot in common as rabbis. Jesus was obviously radically more progressive, but Hillel was pretty progressive too. As a matter of fact, Hillel does some amazing exposition of the Torah when it comes to the issue of love. Love was a big deal to Hillel, really big deal. He was really big into the love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus had a lot of them. But here's where it gets kind of funny. Because in the case of divorce, Jesus appears to reject Hillel and side with Shammai. As a matter of fact, in the Gospel of Mark, it gets even more stringent than Shammai. Jesus gets even more stringent than Moses, who allowed for divorces. He states that under no circumstance can somebody legitimately divorce without committing adultery. So in Matthew, Jesus states this first. In this one, he agrees with Shammai. He states that divorce was an accommodation within patriarchal marriages. In Matthew 19, 8, 9, Jesus says this. He said to them, it was because you were so hard-hearted that Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for unchastity, cheating on him, and marries another, commits adultery. So in this passage here, this gospel writer, it seems that Jesus is agreeing with Shammai. But is that really what he's doing? 
Well, yes and no. Because you can miss the forest or the tree for the forest. I mean, you just you miss the main point. And Jesus is trying to drive home a main point. First of all, with by saying that, I could at least say he's trying to wipe out Hillel's liberal policy of my wife burnt the meal and you can divorce her. Or I like, oh, I don't like her anymore because I found something unpleasant because I'm hooking up with that gal over there. She's younger and better looking model. I'm going to take her and I'm going to dump you because that was happening for sure. And Hillel is trying to get to those who are doing that, uh, or uh, Jesus is trying to get to those who are using Hillel to do that and saying to them, no, dude, no way. Shammai is right. So Shammai people are going, yeah, Rabbi's on our side. Then it gets worse. And he says Moses allowed that because of hard-heartedness. And if you go back in the Torah, Moses allows for divorce. And again, I think it's a compassionate thing. I think in Moses' day, he was trying to help women who were severely abused not to be forced to stay in an abusive relationship and would allow, because of the hard-heartedness of mankind, to divorce. But in the Gospel of Mark, we find a Jesus that is even more strict. No justification to divorce whatsoever, not even infidelity. Here, the scripture is different. And what Jesus says is different. Sounds the same, but it's different. But Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote that command for you. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. And for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. How many weddings have you been to where you heard that? God, that's horrible. Because it's coming from this patriarchal understanding of ownership and property. So they are no longer two but one flesh, and therefore what God has joined together, let no one separate. That's a standard wedding thing, right? But it freaked the disciples out. And the disciples asked Jesus about this matter. They're kind of going like, God, who wants to get married? And Jesus says to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery, period. No exceptions, no infidelity, no nothing. If you divorce and remarry, it's adultery. Wow. Talk about putting women in a bind, but not women. This is putting Shammai in a bind. Because Shammai was all puffed. Yeah, see, I'm right. And as long, you know, if your wife cheats on you, divorce her. And he's like, eh, no, no, no. You really want to get technical? Even that's adultery. See, Jesus was a pragmatic, logical kind of guy. And I'd argue that these examples, and Jesus is not speaking to women. He's speaking to men and he's shocking them, and he's making them uncomfortable because they have all the power and control, and they think they're getting away with stuff, whether it's Hillel or Shammai. And he's trying to say, no, it's all a big mess. You're all a mess in what you're doing to the patriarchal marriage system. 
These authors were writing within the boundaries of their own understanding of Jewish patriarchal society. And that's what's missed. These verses aren't for today. They're not for today. They have no meaning for us today in our society. Jesus' concern within those constraints of a patriarchal society was justice for women. He's speaking to men and pounding on them and making them uncomfortable and making them feel guilty because in many ways they are because the whole system is messed up. I mean, it was a culture that disadvantaged women, that made them dependent on survival for a man, a husband, or a father. And Jesus is looking for a distributive justice that takes into consideration all parties equally. And that is the gross misunderstanding of the cultural context of Jesus' words that are thrown around today all the time in evangelical churches. When Jesus speaks of divorce, we see a double standard where men didn't commit adultery against a woman, but only against the husband of the married woman. There's the offense. If the woman was unmarried, the man paid the penalty to who? The father. But it wasn't labeled adultery, even if the man was married. I mean, these laws were written where men were allowed to have multiple wives as long as the rights of the father of the women were being respected. Jesus cannot be lifted out of that context to promote injustice and abuse towards women today, as I have seen in my 32 years of ministry, and I actually was a proponent of in much of my fundamentalist years. It's a totally different world we live in today. And it's a gross contradiction of the spirit of justice to not know that and take that into consideration. And then to use these words as the binding word of the ineffable, infinite, infallible, inerrant word of God. We don't worship institutions, we worship Jesus. We don't follow institutions or the Bible, we follow Jesus. Because he's got a whole different plan. Jesus did not support patriarchal marriage. He was there beginning to assail it and undermine it. In fact, I believe they unequivocally denounce patriarchal marriage as being unjust. And Jesus is always calling us, as he did in his life, to prioritize the vulnerable in our culture through 2,000 years. And let me tell you, women have been vulnerable and still are in most places all over the globe. And they've been vulnerable in the United States of America. I mean, women were only deemed to have the acuity, mental acuity, to vote within your lifetime. <laughs> Think about that in this country. And many came after us. It's astounding if you look at the right to vote for women on a global map. I got this one map and it shows every year that every country allowed women to vote. It's all in the 1900s. It's all very recent that women were even given that basic right 
the suffrage movement in America, if you don't know about it much, check it out. Jesus was cared, cared about the vulnerable. And his justice concern was rooted in discrimination. In his day, the discrimination, when he talks about divorce, he's putting teeth into it against the patriarchal men. And whether that discrimination is race, ethnicity, gender expression, gender identity, class, education, sexuality, ability, age, culture, language, religion. We are called to put people and their well-being first. That's why this matters today in understanding the proper context of what Jesus is talking about in divorce matters today because Jesus was not trying to ironclad and box in women. He was trying to liberate them from an oppressive system, an unjust system, as he always did and as I always try to do. These passages are talking about women that were disposable objects. They were property, discarded anytime you wanted in a consumer style. People could discard or trade a wife based on legal loopholes in the Torah without acknowledging the damage that was done to women. And Jesus is acknowledging that. Jesus calls us to reject seeing anyone as disposable or a means to our own pleasure and gratification as women were and have been and still are treated in much of the world today. People matter. Justice matters. As I said at the beginning, there are righteous and unrighteous divorces today. And I don't need the Bible to tell me which is which. You don't need the Bible to know when some man or some gal is getting screwed over by their spouse. You just know it. And you don't need the Bible to know, like, why are you guys married? Because you're Christians. No. <laughs> you are a living picture of hell on earth. Split. Be free. Be blessed. Move on with your lives. Find your smile again. Find joy. Find future. Find life. Because this is just a living death and you're not doing God a favor. But the Bible says, I don't care what the Bible says. I'm not an idiot. Let's not confuse ancient outdated quotes from a 2,000 year old writing for what we're trying to do today. And it goes for the same for a host of other issues, slavery. When you use the Bible, you can use the Bible to absolutely allow it. Rape. Owning women. That's property. As many as you'd like. Don't worship and believe in the Bible, but rather focus on the trajectory that we find in it. And that trajectory that we see is love and justice. That we see in Jesus. And that's why I follow him. Between all the messiness and all those weird Torah passages. We need to use our brains and we need to use our hearts. And we need to stand for and promote justice and mercy and compassion and restoration and healing and love and forgiveness. Now those are things we can believe in and pursue. Nothing makes me happier than when I see a miserable couple that I've known divorced 
and both of them living life again. See? Because the institution isn't what's sacred. Love is. Restoration and healing. I hope for you that have been through divorces, I hope for you that had children that went through divorces or parents that went through divorces, I hope for you that have been raised in a church where divorce was such a stigma of shame. I, I hope you heard my words today. And I hope you, if you went through a divorce yourself or you're about to, that you hear my words today, okay? Jesus is not mad at you. He's there to restore you and help you and love you and for you to have a better life, right? Peace, peace and grace be with you.